Welcome to the Resident Evil Lorecast, the podcast that will explore the various mediums and lore of the Resident Evil franchise, such as the video games, movies, novels, and more. And here are your hosts, Ariel, Daniel, and Aaron. Got something that might interest you. <laughs> well, welcome back to the Resident Evil Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me are my fellow hosts, Ariel. Hello. And Daniel. Hi there. And we are back to talk about, well, I guess finish our conversation about Resident Evil Code Veronica. And I believe this episode is all about our favorite characters. Took you long enough to say it. I had to do a pause, you know, contribute just like Daniel does on the other podcast. Yeah, but it's okay when he does it, not when you do it. Yeah, Tariff's all about, you know, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Dramatic. Yes. Effect. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, we're not here to talk about that. Let's talk about Resident Evil. Let's start off with our characters. Ariel, who do you have for us today? I have Steve Burnside. Ooh. Yep. That, before you get going, that name, Burnside. It's just... Sideburns. <laughs> That's all I can think about. <laughs> well, guess what? What? His blood type is AB. Oh, you have a blood type this I time? I do this time. Oh. So, let's dive in. Steve Burnside was a prisoner sent to Rockford Island along with his father. Ooh. This was due to his father who was an Umbrella employee that was selling the company's secret at auction. But he got caught. How does Burnside wrap into this then? He and Steve were taken as prisoners while Steve's mother was killed. Oh, so it's just Umbrella doing some dirty then. Yep. (laughs) Like they normally do. So, Steve and his father was imprisoned in Rockford Island's prison until it was taken over by the HCF. During the course of his escape, Steve and his father became separated. However, Steve managed to survive the zombie onslaught caused by the sudden outbreak of the experimental T-virus. Some time later, Steve met Claire after attacking her on the presumption that she was a zombie. Claire shot the light that he shined on her and defended herself. These actions caused Steve to realize his error and cordially met her face to face. Sorry, I shot you. (laughs) Steve left Claire in order to procure an airplane to escape the island. When Steve was found again in the computer room, which was the room after the 3D duplicator device, he was looking the information up on Chris Redfield. When Claire asked him what he was doing there, Steve asked Claire if Chris was her relative. Claire asked him if he meant her brother, and Steve realized the fact that they are siblings. Well, took him a while. (laughs) He tapped on the lever that released the lock on the door, saying, Well, it seemed that your brother was under surveillance by Umbrella. Hmm. I wonder why. Hmm. After Claire emailed Leon to tell Chris that he was being monitored as well as the coordinates of the island, Steve said that Chris would not come and Claire would just end up disappointed if she relied on others. 
Steve stormed out of the room. A little bit of a Debbie Downer. <laughs> Steve took the Gold Lugers and the island's palace. Because of his attitude, he did not realize that he could put them back and disable the trap that he set off. When Claire released the trap, Steve claimed the Lugers, saying that he found them, although Claire was the one who found them first, and he was keeping them. Then he proposed a deal to Claire, a fully automatic gun for the Lugers. When Claire was thinking, Steve said that he would see her around and bolted out of the room, leaving Claire alone once more. So I kind of get the assumption here, Steve's just a dick. So it sounds like... So yeah, throughout the throughout the game, he's a bit of a dick, but then lightens up a little bit when he realizes, well, maybe I can rely on Claire a little bit, and lightens up. And then when he gets to Antarctica, then you know, at the end, he ends up sacrificing himself. That is once again, Capcom has developed a character that you love to hate. Then you start to feel for, and at the end, they take them away in the most incredible fashion. Yeah, that's, you know, they love doing that. (laughs) So who's next on our character talk? All right, so we will cover Alexia, which this will also cover a little bit of her B.O.W. status as well. So we'll just do a double whammy there. Alexia Ashford was a member of the British nobility coming from the Ashford family, the adopted daughter of Dr. Alexander Ashford, the sixth Earl Ashford. (laughs) Gotta be all proper there. Her real parentage was a result of a cloning experiment referred to as Project Code Veronica and was biologically the daughter of Veronica Ashford, first Countess Ashford. So we now know why our game is named Code Veronica. Huh. (laughs) Though her grandfather, Dr. Edward Ashford, 5th Earl Ashford, you guys are going to need a family tree if you want to follow this whole thing. (laughs) She was able to gain a position as a urologist within Umbrella Pharmaceuticals, an enterprise he co-founded. So she's already been basically cloned into this whole operation. Without knowing it. Didn't even have a choice. So her early life, Alexia and her brother Alfred, the future seventh Earl Ashford, well, they love saying Earl, <laughs> were born around 1971 to an unnamed surrogate mother as part, ah, as part of Project Code Veronica. The project, led by Dr. Alexander Ashford, involved obtaining DNA from the embalmed body of his ancestor, Veronica, and creating a genetically modified clone. Purpose of it was a vanity project intent on restoring the family's reputation with a child comparable to Veronica, whose intelligence was renowned, and prevent Dr. Oswald E. Spencer from taking full control over the corporation should Dr. Edward Ashford die. So basically, Ashford already knew shit was going to go down, so he basically cloned the smartest person in his family twice for a contingency plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. In case stuff happens. We want you we want you around. But I would doubt that she would be that controllable. I mean, we'll get into it when we start talking about her, but... <laughs> Whereas Alexia's genius 
intellect fulfilled all of Dr. Ashford's expectations, the higher-than-average Alfred did not compare, perhaps due to having been the result of a freak error during the cloning process intended solely to create Alexia. Nonetheless, both were raised by Dr. Ashford at his home under the Antarctic base. At the age of 10, Alexia graduated from University in England and was employed by Umbrella Pharmaceuticals as one of their virologists. Isolated from other scholars by her young age and from children by her intellect, Alexia's only comfort was her brother, Alfred. Having already developed a loathing of her father as another member of the ignorant masses. So, hold on. You're saying she graduated college at the age of 10? Yes. Just when you think Umbrella couldn't make school any more or less pointless, they do it again. Because you have Rebecca, who graduated, I think, at 18. She graduated college. I think so. It was like 18 or 19. It's been so many episodes ago. But then you have the, you know, literally, I feel like Capcom made age just a number in these games. <laughs> Well, if you're cloned and modified enough, it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, but I mean, 10 years old to graduate university. That's insane. I graduated at five. <laughs> That's the next character yep. that we don't have a game out for yet. <laughs> That'll be a nine. That's Rose. Rose. <laughs> Spoilers, everybody. <laughs> anyway. All right. In February 1983, sometime around her 12th birthday... Her brother Alfred told her about a secret room in the Antarctic base at which she was working at the time and told her he needed her family gemstone, a large ruby inside a silver choker, to open it. Offering it to him, she aided him in opening the secret corridor. Once inside, the twins learned the complete truth about their creation and both grew immensely hateful of their father. So she already dislikes her father and now she definitely hates him. It's that teen angst. <laughs> She's getting there. Capturing him in March 1983, they used him as a test subject for the T. Veronica virus that she had created by binding together the progenitor virus and the remnants of an ancient virus found within a queen ant. Since her father didn't have preparation before, the experiment turned Alexander into the insane monster known as Nosferatu. Taking notes on her father's progress, Alexia discovered certain flaws in her virus and planned to inject herself with the virus to become a superior being. She must have been talking to Spencer. Using the data she had attained from her father, Alexia discovered a way to harness the full power of the virus by having herself put into cryogenic suspension for 15 years while the virus, slowed by the ultra-low temperatures to a point where it could not destroy her tissues through overly rapid mutation, matured within her unconscious body. In December 1983, she assigned Alfred to protect her and carry out her will why she was inactive and proceeded to enter the cryogenic state. So, 15 later, 15 years after this, she awoke with the first sight of her new stage being the death of her brother, whose body she cradled in her arms. He had activated the thawing process mere moments prior. Now in full control of the virus, she sought to begin her plan of dominion over the world as its queen and using her newfound powers, she remotely controlled one of the massive tentacles resting below the Antarctic base to destroy the escape vehicle of Claire Redfield and Steve Burnside. She also captured Steve and Claire for the purpose of subjecting them to the experiments and to make them pay for killing her brother. 
She imprisoned Steve in a coliseum with suits of armor and repeated the experiment that mutated her father, only with her own mutant strain. Later on, she appeared to confront Albert Wesker in the Spencer Mansion under the Antarctic ice. Now we're getting more into the B.O.W. state. There she first evolved with the Veronica strain into the first step of what she envisioned was true godhood, shedding her human skin and hair and turning into a powerful being that greatly resembled her human stage with gray skin, darkened vessels and arteries, and chitinous growths covering her body as a form of rudimentary armor. She also controlled her body's blood, which by then had acquired flammable properties usable through bloodshed, and her head formed to a skin-like hair with a short fringe on the right and long to the left. She and Wesker engaged in a brief fight, and Wesker quickly found Alexia impervious to any physical blows he could launch, and thus retreated, leaving Chris to fight Alexia, who soundly defeated her. And then this is her death. Weakened by her first defeat, she was once again attacked by Chris by fusing with one of the Veronica mutant breeder pods creating countless imperfect larvae to attack him along with her tentacles, fire and insect-like appendages. Despite this, she was once again defeated. However, Alexia was not beaten yet. She responded by evolving further using the insects that lay below the platform covering her. Then she shed the carcass of the breeder pod and became a giant dragonfly-like monster, capable of spewing great amounts of flame and absorbing all gunfire. Nevertheless, Chris managed to destroy Alexia with an experimental weapon called the Linear Launcher, thus ending the Ashford family line. So, I want to take a minute there and just talk about how poetic that is. Because when you look through some of the computer files, you'll find a video of Alexia and her brother pulling the wings off of a dragonfly. Which we saw in something else. Which we, we did. Yeah, we in the movie. did. Yeah, spoiler alert, it was also in the movie. <laughs> but nonetheless, I still want to bring up the fact that it was poetic that at the end of the her entire lifespan and evolution process, the last thing she evolves into is a freaking giant dragonfly. And then is subsequently killed. Like, that is just poetic justice. Complete circle. <laughs> I'm actually a big fan of dragonflies. So So you should like Alexia Ashford. Then. Yeah. Well, I like her final form. I wouldn't say I like her. <laughs> but at any rate, who's the next character we're going to cover? Well, I'm going to cover Chris from Code Veronica. Okay. We covered his early life and everything. I'm not going to re-go over that. So I will go over from this game. Okay. And just to remind everybody, his blood type is O. <laughs> so, Redfield's search for the Umbrella headquarters ended quickly in late December. His sister, Claire, was captured by Umbrella's security division in France and transported to a prison camp on Rockford Island. A strain of the T-virus engulfed the island as its security forces defended an invasion from HCF a paramilitary unit under the command of Wesker. Redfield himself was made aware of this when he was contacted by Leon Kennedy, a former rookie RPD officer turned U.S. STRATCOM agent that Claire met in Raccoon City. Redfield immediately traveled to the island to rescue her. 
He met Rodrigo Juan Raval, a security guard who freed Claire from her cell earlier during the chaos. Redfield continued to explore the remains of the island's facilities after he learned that Claire left the island altogether and was confronted by Wesker, who revealed his superhuman abilities and informed him that Claire was at an umbrella facility in Antarctica. Redfield piloted one of the facility's Harrier jets to the Ross Ice Shelf. Upon reaching the Antarctic base, he found her unconscious in a replica of Spencer's mansion. Wesker himself traveled to the base in pursuit of Alexia Ashford, who possessed the last remaining sample of the T. Veronica virus. Redfield and Claire's reunion was brief as they are separated when Claire departed to find a fellow prisoner, Steve, whom she was cooperating. Redfield watched Wesker and a mutated Alexia fight after he demanded that she should hand the Veronica virus over but was forced to deal with her himself when Wesker fled the scene. After Steve's death, Redfield activated the base's self-destruct system and reunited with the sister. They attempted to escape, but Alexia reappeared and tried to stop them. So he uses his fancy weapon, kills her, (laughs) and told Claire to wait for him at the Harrier jet while he dealt with it. When the base began to crumble, Redfield chased after Wesker, who had taken Claire hostage. Redfield convinced Wesker to release Claire, claiming that it was him that he really wanted. Wesker responded that killing him was better than completing his mission of acquiring the virus. Redfield also learned that Wesker planned to extract the virus from Burnside's corpse and was appalled by Wesker's implication that he planned to resurrect Steve from the dead little bit of necromancy telling Claire to wait at the jet Redfield engaged Wesker in hand-to-hand combat but was brutally beaten by Wesker's new superhuman abilities as Wesker gloated that his new powers are well worth the price of his humanity a desperate Redfield caused several hanging girders to topple onto Wesker's head even this was not enough to kill Wesker but the two dazed men were in no condition to continue fighting due to the imminent destruction of the facility Wesker promised that the next time that they met, it would be the last. With the base exploding around him, Chris emerged from the elevator and was blown across the room, landing on the nose of the jet. Scrambling into the cockpit with his sister, Redfield piloted the jet away from the facility, which promptly exploded. Claire asked him to promise that he would not go off and leave her alone again, but Redfield said that he had to put a stop to Umbrella for good. After this incident, Redfield was reunited with Valentine, who previously escaped Raccoon City's destruction with Burton. She previously arrived at Redfield's ransacked apartment, but found only his knife on the floor. Valentine set off to find Redfield, who was already searching for her. After reuniting, the two joined as partners to form an anti-bioweapon task force. Which we know as... Is that the BSAA? Oh, it is. (laughs) Working alone for the next five years, they did everything that they could to try and expose Umbrella, but always wound up at a dead end. And that is all I'm covering on Chris for now. 
he will be back in five. five. Yeah. <laughs> so who else we got, Daniel? All right. Now we get to cover Alexia's brother, Alfred. All right. Alfred Ashford, seventh Earl Ashford, was a British nobleman and governor of Rockford Island. He was the son of Veronica Ashford, the first Countess Ashford, born through genetic engineering along with his sister, as we know. He was also the final governor of Rockford Island, having overseen the exodus of the islanders and installation of a prison camp for enemies of the Umbrella Corporation. He died soon after the island fell to a T-virus outbreak orchestrated by an Umbrella rival group. Similar to his sister, he was the result of a genetic experiment and a mistake. <laughs> All right. No wonder he had so much animosity towards his quote-unquote dad. How would you feel if you were told for like your entire life you were a mistake? <laughs> we probably didn't say it directly to him, but I. But being. Uh, how some Capcom villains are, I could see him just saying that to him all the time. <laughs> exactly. It's not funny. It is really sad, but that's, that's how we got him as a villain. This his dad telling him he was a mistake. Exactly. So from birth, the twins were immediately divided based on their intelligence, with Alfred growing up idolizing Alexia. While he was found to have higher than average intellect, his sister was determined to be a genius and thus her education was given the utmost priority, allowing her to graduate university at the age of 10. So already he probably dislikes her still. Mm-hmm. Because, but it comes back to the whole father thing because if she's given all these priorities. The two would then live together in the Antarctic base where Alexia was to conduct her T-virus research in a project dubbed T-Veronica. So after... Alexia went into cryogenic sleep for the 15 years of the virus. He was then left alone at the age of 12. The new Lord Ashford was left to continue his family's legacy alone. Driven by this, he overcame his grief and was able to graduate from a respectable English university in 1993. Lord Ashford entered employment with the Umbrella Corporation as the other Ashfords had done. Though the weight of his family name earned a number of jobs within the company, which, while senior, were largely irrelevant to the company politics. Along the, alongside the position of director of the Antarctic base, he took full advantage of his inherited governorship of Rockford Island by the following year. The Hispanic settler population was driven out to give space for the construction of a concentration camp for umbrella enemies, a boot camp for anti-BOW training, and a private residence on the overside of a valley, where he hoped to live with Alexia one day. Having been given full control over these facilities, Lord Ashford chose to ignore the Antarctic base and build up a dictatorial rule on Rockford. Still affected by the loss of his sister, Lord Ashford's mental health shattered, creating a dual personality, one that remained the insane Alfred Ashford and another figment took over his memories of Alexia, creating a new personality closely resembling her. Due to the fact he remained oblivious as to the truth of Alexia's apparent return, he lived alone in his house on Rockford Island, often allowing the Alexia Fragment to take complete control above his body, dressing up like her and speaking in her voice, something with which confused those who saw him from afar. So basically, he snapped and developed a split personality of his sister. Yes. 
So we have a full, you know, split moment going on. Oh yeah, he just he lost it. <clears throat> Much like it seems like a lot of the umbrella villains do. <laughs> Let's see here. There, he or the fraction of his mind that represented Alfred had long conversations with the Alexia Shard and developed militaristic tendencies and a massive ego as his mind further eroded. Also due to his neurosis, while Alfred was posing as Alexia, he invented the person Tanya as a way to mask who he was, waiting for the moment to awaken from cryogenic stasis. In his time as governor of Rockford Island and commander-in-chief of its base, Lord Ashford enforced harsh measures on the prisoners and people were violently tortured and executed seemingly at random. He did not act on impulses directly, however, instead hired the prison camp's schizophrenic anatomist to perform ritualistic torture on, providing him with drugs to use. A bridge was constructed that would allow him to directly cross over from the governor's official residence to his private residence in 1994, and the entire workforce was subsequently executed to silence them. His secretary, Robert Dawson, was sent to the prison camp after spotting him dressed as Alexia. What the hell? As Ashford's career continued, his mental state became ever more so erratic, even taking his iron fist into account. His management of the Antarctic base was of total neglect and had earned the ire of his workers at the transport terminal who were repeatedly denied vacation time while perpetually behind in deliveries. These delays led to global shortages of various chemicals in 1998, which were directly blamed on Ashford. From, from the middle of 1998, Umbrella HQ became aware of an apparent HCF spy ring on Rockford Island and determined that the source of research leaks held a prominent role on the island. Believing an attack on the island was imminent, a tyrant was shipped over with the intent on using it against attackers. In December 1998, HCF finally attacked Rockford Island with their operative within the military training camp detonating an explosive in its lab, leading to the E-strain escaping as an airborne pathogen. As with the Mansion incident, this T-virus strain quickly returned to its normal method of transmission after infecting a, normal, a number of people. Those not killed by the carpet bombing or by HCF found themselves infected or killed by their own men. Ashford escaped the disaster and armed himself with a sniper rifle for protection. Incorrectly determined one of the spies to be Claire Redfield, a prisoner newly transferred to the base and made several attempts on her life. Switching between his Alfred and Alexia personas, he led Redfield and fellow survivor Steve Burnside to thank for a time they were two people. After a confrontation at the private res residence, Ashford departed back to the training camp where he set off the auto-destruct for the island facilities, activated the T-078 to take out survivors, and fled in his personal Harry jet to the Antarctic base. However, upon arriving at the site, Lord Ashford found that the facility was overtaken by zombies that escaped from the planes that had evacuated from Rockford Island after the HCF attack, what made him take shelter in his office. Sources differ as to how Ashford died after re reaching Antarctic base. In one account, he found Redfield and Burnside there and once again tried to kill them was shot and fell down a pit from where he dragged himself to the cryogenics laboratory where his sister Alexia was and freed her, ultimately dying in her arms due to, the, due to the severity of his injuries. If that account is true, Alfred's body would be stored in the same capsule where Alexia had hibernated, only for it to be discovered by Chris Redfield upon his future exploration of the base 
and his ring was then used to unlock a secret door to Alexander's lab. Already another account suggests that Alfred was strangled to death by his own sister shortly after he freed her as punishment for being late in awakening her. Whatever happened, in both accounts, Alfred died shortly after his sister was awakened from her confinement. So we really don't know how he died. No, it's probably whichever way you take. <laughs> I like to think that he died in her arms. You know, give give him give him at least that much. Poor guy. So that's all we've got for the Ashford family for now. Yes. And we have one more character to discuss. All right. Rodrigo Juan Raval was an Umbrella Security Service employee. Though assigned to the defense of Umbrella's Europe Paris Laboratory, Raval became caught up in the biohazard on Rockford Island. Raval was born and raised on Rockford Island, which had been planted by Spanish colonists for generations. The island was for some time under the ownership of the Asher family, a British aristocratic house, with each successor to the earldom becoming its new governor. In the 1990s, Raval himself joined the Umbrella Security Service and was assigned to the Paris Laboratory as third squad's leader. In December 1998, the Paris Laboratory was infiltrated by Claire Redfield, leading to a shootout in the facility culminating in a UH-6 helicopter firing through the windows. Raval succeeded personally in capturing Redfield and traveled with her back to Rothfer Island as a concentration camp inmate. Soon after Raval's arrival, HCF attacked the island, bombing the ground and releasing the T-virus. Raval himself received a torso wound, possibly from being shot. Having a change of heart, he released Redfield from her holding cell to give her a chance to fight and escape rather than die in her cell. Redfield later returned his kindness by providing him with hemostatic medicine and her brother's lighter. As the last surviving, as the last survivors fled the island on transport planes, Raval, in an improved condition thanks to the medicine, made his way to the remains of a crypt where the settlers buried their dead, finding comfort with the prospect of dying with his family. The following day, Raval was met by Chris Redfield, Claire's brother. Raval explained to him she was likely no longer on the island, but was then swallowed by Gulpworm, a rogue BOW created for USS training. Though the creature spat him out. He received acid burns throughout his body. He could not survive. In his final actions, he returned the lighter he was given. So short, sweet, and to the point for him. Yeah. So to sum it all up, he was involved in not only one, but two attacks. He get he gets done with Paris. They capture Claire. Goes to Rockford Island. Then gets involved in another attack. And he's like, what the hell? Gets mortally wounded. Claire helps him out after he helps her out to then only get involved in a third attack from a BOW. Well, see, to then die. (laughs) And the Paris one, he took her to the concentration camp. He was for Umbrella. Yeah. So then he felt sorry for her. So if he wouldn't have brought her there in the first place, this whole thing wouldn't happen to him. (laughs) If he had just killed her there, we could have avoided all of this. (laughs) He might be safe. And that's what I have on Rodrigo. Well, with all that being said, and I think that's all the major characters we need to discuss, we are going to go to our mid-break. Well, here we are in the middle of the show. What'd you bring for us today, Daniel? All right, on Redbubble. Oh, Redbubble. As I always get merchandise, they have 
an umbrella clock, which has like the biohazard symbol with the red and white umbrella lightly put into the back. You can get it in three different frame colors, natural bamboo, black, white. And the hand color can be white, black, red, or aqua. Uh, red. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure aqua would, would work in this case. <laughs> so it looks like this clock runs 2976. So. <laughs> That's why I looked right at Ariel. Redbubble has such odd prices for things. You guys couldn't tell, but since I know Ariel likes odd change. So weird to me. <laughs> that may or may not be with shipping, but you can find it on Redbubble. And it looks like it's made by the Rocket Man. It just says Operate or Umbrella Corp Clock is what it is. We'll post links in Discord, the show notes, and on Twitter. I'm going to need this clock because you know my fascination with clocks. <laughs> I have to have a clock in every single room. True. You know, and it would look really great in this studio. In the studio that's full of Dungeons and Dragons memorabilia. <laughs> yes. I mean, we do have a Resident Evil section too, so maybe we'll just put it over there. It goes on the wall. <laughs> It's where clocks go. Anyway, what'd you bring for us this middle? So, I read an article. Oh? As always. Mm -hmm. And this is from Screen Rant. And the article is, Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, Concept Art Shows Unused Monsters. Ooh? So, the VFX studio behind Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City, shares a collection of terrifying concept art which never made it in the final film. Oh, Applied Arts FX Studio, who helped bring the film's terrifying zombie hordes to life on the screen, has taken to Instagram to share some early concept art of monsters that never made the final cut, including both human-like and more bestial creatures. The concept art also contains what appears to be some early concepts for Lisa Trevor. And scrolling through these pictures, some of them are pretty terrifying, and I wish made the final cut. There's it what looks like a hunter, one of the hunters, mm. which would have been great to see in the film. It would have been fantastic. And some other terrifying looking creatures. There's the spiders. There was a tyrant looking monster. And there is quite a few early concepts of Lisa Trevor. And I will post this link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So please check it out because this there's really good photos on here. It's some of them look pretty gnarly, like, to be honest. Like the original concept of the tyrant, yeah, that's yeah. I'm really disappointed that these didn't make it into the final cut, but there's always hope. If they make a sequel, uh. <laughs> well, with all that being said, I actually brought two because I couldn't pick one, just a one this week. So the first one comes to us. It's an article uh, from siliconera.com. And I'm not going to go through the entire article, but I want to highlight some points. So during the New Year's greeting 2002 for uh, Famitsu, which is Famitsu is basically a conference where video game companies and, you know, just nerd companies in general can come through and announce their upcoming stuff for the year. Capcom discussed things for Monster Hunter. They discussed that this is the 35th year for Street Fighter and Mega Man. But 
what really we want to highlight is the fact that Resident Evil was brought up during this. And Capcom noted that it will be providing title updates. So video game, different, all these previous titles will be updated in the series for more players to enjoy. So what it sounds like is that they're going to be bringing back all the originals to newer consoles, if not redoing some more old games, which honestly, I welcome it because the redos of two and three were fantastic. Yes. Even if they just fix the controls for some of the mm-hmm. old games, that'd be great. Exactly. So the, it's sounds like they're teasing remasters of the games. Uh, they also briefly mentioned that RE Village DLC will still be coming in 2002 or 2022. They didn't mention any details of it. They just said it's still coming. So they asked us to wait patiently. <laughs> what else can we do? Mm, exactly. So the other one I brought to, I want to bring is this one comes from our modder community. And you can check out uh, a video of the mod as well as links to download the new Resident Evil 2 and 3 VR adaptations. So you can find this on kotaku.com and uh, again, all the links for this stuff will be in the show notes. But basically what they've done is the modern community has come together and they've created, this this is from GitHub, the mod community of GitHub. So the modern community has created a VR mod for the new RE4 game so that you can play RE2 and RE3. You can get the upload on GitHub and you will jump straight into the Raccoon City events. And some of the gameplay is available on this article. Could you imagine playing two VR? Oh, it two and three would be even more terrifying than four because you have things jumping out all the time in these games. Uh huh. Especially in the remakes. Mm hmm. And that's exactly what these mods are. It is the remakes. Perfect. <laughs> so, I, I like I said, I was super excited about that one, and yeah, I wanted to bring it to the table. Well, that was a good one to bring. <laughs> so, with all that being said. The last thing we need to do is to thank our patrons. So I want to give a big thank you to our official patron, Anthony Bellotti, and our all access patrons, Remington, Cloutier, and Chris Slight. Thank you all. You're all wonderful. We love you. And you're amazing. You're the best. (laughs) And for those of you that just listen to our show and share it with friends, you're also amazing. It helps us grow and we welcome it. So thank you to everyone who listens and is patrons. You are all wonderful. Thanks. And with that being said, let's jump to the end of the episode. So here we are at the end of the episode and it's time to talk BOWs and unlockables. So let's start off with our BOWs first. What do we got on the chopping block? All right. So the first B.O.W. we have is the Bandersnatch. So its biology, the Bandersnatch, has some physical similarities to the tyrant it was meant to emulate, being a large, bulky humanoid mutant. 
However, it is far too grotesque to ever pass as human. His skin is sickly yellow and lined with disgustingly bloated red blood vessels. The head has decayed and seemingly liquefied, with visible strands of flesh connected to the shoulders and chest. As a result, the Bandersnatch's face is nearly skeletal in appearance, although its eyes appear functional. Like the Tyrant, the Bandersnatch's arms are its most drastic mutations, but to an extreme extent. Its left arm has atrophied entirely, leaving little more than a vestigial stump, on the other hand. Its right arm becomes enormous, muscular, and elastic. The B.O.W. can use this arm to pull itself long distances, even grasping ledges and walkways in multi-story buildings, like an organic grappling hook. Its arm also serves as its main weapon in battle, being used to whip enemies, throw them around, or crush their skulls. And that is the Banner Snatch. That is a gnarly creature. Oh, it definitely looks like it, too. <laughs> The Sweeper, I don't have much on, as it is a variant of the Hunter 2. It has a similar body plan to the Hunter 2, though the main distinction was that the Sweeper could release a poisonous substance from its claws, incapacitating people scratched by it. So that's the difference between the normal Hunter 2 and the, the Sweeper version. Next, I will cover the Seeker. Seeker is actually not a B.O.W. and it's actually just an enemy in the game. It's an automated machine that is used to principally for detection of hostile targets. It has otherwise been referred to as a self-propelled surveillance device. The HCF used a model of Seeker that operated alongside the Hunter 2s. It would project a beam of light from its head, which is its sight. When it would detect movement from a hostile stepping on its range of vision, it alert nearby hunters with a sound the BOWs were trained to respond to. That is the Seeker. Then we get to an insect that Ariel loves. Oh boy. Let's see here. And these would be the ants. Something that Veronica likes as well. They are an unnamed mutant species of an ant created through DNA-altering effects of the T. Veronica virus. These ants, enhanced by the virus, grew to larger-than-average proportions due to excessive production of growth hormones. These changes also affected their behavior, making them more aggressive to the point of openly attacking nearby humans. Their jaws also became strong enough to cause pain to passing humans. Unlike other mutants created through various strains of T-Virus, the ants remained fertile and were able to propagate their species rather than relying on the use of cloning methods. That's what I have on the ants. The Gulpworm. The Gulpworm hunts through the use of its highly sensitive exterior by feeling vibrations emitted through sound and during movement. If it senses prey, the Gulpworm will launch its considerable mass towards its target, generally knocking it to the ground or consuming it whole. Gulpworms have an enlarged digestive system capable of digesting a human whole. So that's Resident Evil's Graboids for you. <laughs> Let's see here. And the last one I'm going to cover is the Albinoid. The Albinoid, unlike most umbrella bioweapons, undergoes metamorphosis. As a baby, they are tadpole-like in appearance. Albinoids reach full maturity in just over 12 hours. When, mat when mature, albinoids are over 2 meters in length and have 4 legs, which are shaped like human arms. Albinoid adults gain strong 
electrical abilities and can cause serious harm to prey in the water. I mean, I would just be weirded out by the human-like shaped arms. I mean, yeah. It's... There's not even a single Resident Evil creature in any of the lore that is not terrifying, let's be honest. I mean, if the hunters were cute little babies before they become (laughs) terrible creatures. (laughs) But that's what I have on the albinoid. Looks like I'm up. Hey! So, what I'm going to cover is Nosferatu. I'm excited to hear about this one. I don't have much. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Because this is um, Alexander Ashford. But what I do have is Nosferatu possesses a large tentacle-like appendage that sprouts from his back, which he can use to attack. Making up for his arms being bound behind his back, Nosferatu can also expel a deadly poisonous gas that can only be cured with a special serum. It was also shown that despite his lack of sight and being bound, he was able to quickly catch up to Claire and Steve on the helipad. Now, it lists a little bit more in the Dark Side Chronicles, so I'm not going to cover that until we cover the game. Mm. So, sorry listeners, short, sweet for this one. There is more, but it's covered in Dark Side Chronicles. So yeah, we're going to discuss a little bit more in depth about that after we do Dead Aim, because... In chronological order, Dead Aims next, and then Dark Side Chronicles. So, I do want to touch base on one thing, though. I love that its name Nosferatu, and the way it looks is almost identical to that of Nosferatu from the old movies. Yeah, it's, yeah. The way it acts, the way it looks, it it is Nosferatu. Agreed. And I love that little nod from Capcom. Capcom's, of course, as we've come to all know, Capcom always has their little nods towards old movies or influences to their games. And this is just a beautiful influence to classic horror. Definitely. Yeah, Nosferatu means diseased or plagued. Like the the name. Really? Mm -hmm. So that's even more of a play on all this. That's incredible. Say Capcom doing their research. I love it. I love <laughs> it. So, who's the next BOW? I have one last BOW. So, the last one I'm covering is a tyrant because I love tyrants. This is T078. I can't wait to talk about this one. <laughs> <laughs> so, T-078 was a tyrant born from cloning by Umbrella in 1998. It was from the cloned T-103 model and part of its mass-produced type. 078 was noted for being without a limiter coat so as to test the effects of using a T-103 without such a device. Therefore, its blunted claws, which it used as battering rams may not be present on all other individuals within the mass-produced type. So the T-078 was delivered to Rockford Island from the Antarctic Transport Terminal in a mission supervised by Hunk. 
Oh, yeah, this is why I'm excited about it. <laughs> yep. On the orders of the island's base's commander, Alfred Ashford. Whether on Ashford's orders or the intention of its creators, T-078's power limiter was disabled, allowing it to experience minor mutations. During the HCF's attack on Rockford Island, Ashford unleashed the tyrant to kill Claire and Steve. While the tyrant was seemingly defeated before reaching the prisoner's C-130 Hercules... It managed to grab hold of the plane as it escaped the island moments before a series of explosions destroyed the base. So, once again, Hunk is a major player in the development of an outbreak. Yeah. I'm starting to think that Hunk himself is just the mastermind behind all of this, and we just don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Hunk. I'm sure we'll see in, you know, later games. Probably mm-hmm. not, but we might. You never know. Be, well, I mean, think about it. Up until this point, Hunk has been impacting a lot of things. You know, in Resident Evil 1, he was, well, 1, 2, and 3. Well, so more so 2 and 3. He was an escape, escapee of the original outbreak. So they say. He was also, as we play on the updated versions, he was also tasked to get, and we get a little bit more detail in it in the, you know, more current versions of two and three. He was tasked to get T samples, T virus samples. And then later on, he's seen again in other games, especially Code Veronica, where he's like, I'm going to escort this, you know, tyrant to its final destination to make sure shit goes the way it's supposed to and then you know we'll talk about him in future games but hunk is always there and he is one of umbrella's top operatives like the best of the best yeah i yeah i could see it (laughs) i mean he even trains some of the members of you know the operation raccoon city maybe he's behind even Wesker Ooh. pulling the strings on Wesker. I don't know. That's a, quite a pull. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so that is it for our BOWs. And I could talk about hunk for quite some time, but we shouldn't. <laughs> uh, no, this is a Resident Evil lore cast, not a hunk lore cast. <laughs> well, at any rate, so let's jump into our unlockables. So we don't have too many unlockables for this game. Um, but there are some pretty cool ones. So the first unlockable you get is battle mode. Okay. Now battle mode is one of the easier ones to unlock. You complete the game with any rank and battle mode will automatically appear. So here are some of the other ones. So characters you can unlock in battle mode. Steve. To play a Steve in battle mode, complete the game collecting the gold Luger and put it in your in- item int box or your inventory. Once you do that, save your progress, and then you can play as Steve in battle mode. So it's pretty simple. You can also play as Wesker in battle mode. To play as Wesker, you need to complete the game with Chris. Now you can play as Wesker. So again, another simple unlock. So you can obtain a submachine gun as Chris. You first have to give Rodrigo the hemostatic medicine and the lighter when you play as Claire. Then as Chris, kill the gulp worm so that it spits Rodrigo out. He will give you he will give Chris the lighter and then use it on 
the little torch in the first room you control as Chris and you get the secrets about machine gun. So it's a couple steps, but once they're completed, you will get a submachine gun as Chris. Um, you can obtain an alternate Claire in battle game. So complete the main game to obtain the game, a battle mode. And then once you've done that, complete battle mode with Claire Redfield and you can obtain her alternate costume. This was interesting to me because this is the one of the first times we've seen it in the Resident Evil series. Uh, you can obtain the first person shooter mode in battle and the battle mode. Okay, so to obtain the first person mode, you have to remember to grab Alfred's sniper rifle before escaping with Steve, and then you'll have it. You'll have that option in battle game. So to unlock first person mode in the game period you just have to complete it easy or normal difficulty and finally the linear rocket launcher with infinite ammo you have to obtain an a rank with every character in the battle mode to unlock the linear launcher with infinite ammo unlike the rocket launcher this will only appear in the battle game mode Every character will start with their in their inventory and can equip it anytime. So you can only get the linear launcher in the battle game mode, which kind of stinks, but whatever. And then we have the unlimited rocket launcher. You just have to complete the game, uh, game and obtain the ranking of A, and you get the unlimited rocket launcher. So that, like I said, it's a short list, but it's a pretty fun one. I always have fun with unlimited rocket launchers. <laughs> Infinite any gun in the Resident Evil series is just fun. It is, <laughs> but those rocket launchers. <laughs> I have a lot of fun with those. Oh my goodness. Maybe if they, maybe if they remaster Code Veronica for this, we will get a linear rocket launcher in gameplay. Mm-hmm. That's unlimited. You know, not to, not to talk about it too long, because we are at the end of the show. But a lot of the fans of the mod community are worried because the mod community is doing Code Veronica as a remake and they're doing it so well that Capcom is just isn't going to spend the time on Veronica. Well, the thing is, is though the modding community does these things. If you follow the modding community throughout the ages, they've done this for quite a while. They've modded games to current consoles or current graphics that does not stop companies from going in and redoing their own games because even though the modding community redoes the graphics and redoes the gameplay and everything else they still aren't following Capcom storylines I'm just saying Capcom would make a ridiculous amount of money if they redid (laughs) Code Veronica. There's a huge fan base for the game. I mean, quite a few of our fans of this show have even told us in the Discord how much they love Veronica. You know, I'm a big fan of Veronica myself. Yeah, it was a really fun game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Capcom, if you're listening, redo redo Veronica. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that being said, we're at the end of the episode, so it's time to give your rankings what do you got ariel i'm giving this game a five out of five leons most definitely i loved the storyline i loved the game Mm -hmm. it was a blast so you're giving it a five out of five because the storyline and you loved it yeah okay because leon is in it for like two seconds yeah that's fine (laughs) it was a really great game 
It was. So what do you got for us, Danny? Uh, I'm going to go with four out of five, Rebecca. Oh, it's really? It's not for that reason. Oh, okay. I was thinking about saying that, but it's not that reason. <laughs> no, I just don't think I care much for Steve. Oh my goodness. I mean, Steve was kind of a dick in the beginning, but you know, you grew to love him. He he grew up Maybe throughout the storyline. <laughs> oh goodness. Of course you would hate on Steve. It's cuz it's cuz he looked like Leonardo DiCaprio, isn't it? Only in one version. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go with 5 out of 5 hunks. Because I love the storyline. I love the research they did into it. I love the little tie-ins. It was just a really good game. You, you know, sh- I sure it's not because he's involved in the Tyrant 078. It's absolutely. See, my rankings are based on whether or not my favorite character is involved. It's completely unbiased. Hey, I <laughs> give my rankings after I say my who Leon. I give my rankings based <laughs> on the game. No, I, I truly enjoyed this game. It was quite the step up from, you know, the Survivor series and things, you know, it's quite the step up. We're getting back into our linear storylines. And I loved it. They they knocked it out of the park with this one. <laughs> I remember 50 years ago when I played this game on my PS2. <laughs> oh, I loved it. So, with all that being said, we're at the end of the show. So, thanks everybody for listening. Tune in next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Resident Evil Lurecast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a comment and review. If you want to keep chatting with us about all things Resident Evil, you can find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can also chat with us at RELurecast on Twitter. Till next time, stay safe out there. And remember, we might have something that might interest you, stranger. What up to Night City? You're listening to N54 Radio. This is DJ Sparks bringing you a new hit show from Night City, Cyberpunk, a cyberpunk red live play podcast. Listen as a ragtag group slamming on the corpos. Survive the streets and try to keep from being flatlined. You can tune in on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. DJ Sparks out! Hello, this is Charlie Transmutation coming to you with another PSA announcement. No, Charlie. This is a commercial. What? Crap. Nobody told me that. Well, what are you supposed to do in this thing anyway? Well, Charlie, I'm glad you asked. This is the part where we introduce our new homebrew 5e D&D podcast, The Fumbling Four and the Almighty Crit, where we explore the homebrew world of Alteris using homebrew rules and homebrew material from the Dungeon Master's Guild. Eh, sounds boring. I'm out of here. See you later, Charlie. We hope to have you guys come check us out soon. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts.